Hi, welcome to Trans Theory, a podcast about the philosophy and science of gender. My name's Yero, and my pronouns are she, her. My name's Ash, and my pronouns are they and them. And today we're talking about epistemic injustices. What does that mean? Well, epistemic or epistemological has to do with knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing that this is injustices that have to do with knowledge. And since this is trans theory, I'm guessing it's knowledge about trans people. Oh, yeah, exactly. More specifically, epistemic or epistemological means uh, it's related to the production of knowledge, mostly the production and like how this is uh, a whole process basically it's, it's mm-hmm. more of a process because we could just say knowledge otherwise so can you give an example of an epistemic injustice so an epistemic I- injustice uh well the first one i uh w- would like to talk about is how like um voices of trans non-binary and gender diverse people are silence in our society have been silenced and actually slowly and and in the last decade have resurfaced a lot more and we take much more space but this silencing like this silencing and especially usually it happens alongside the appropriation of our own narrative well how all of this in itself is an injustice because it silences us it um marginalizes us it affects our health and all of this is really about the how like the fact that we really like the cis people didn't want us to make knowledge about ourselves like blocked us from even like trying to be in 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 groups like by arresting us because we didn't have like more we we had like more than three objects on our like we were wearing three objects or more on our bodies that were not supposedly the right gender or like just mm-hmm. putting us in in jails for that all of all, all of this is sort of um in the process of uh, an epistemic injustice in a way when you talk about the uh, appropriation of our narrative as trans people, the appropriation by cis people, um, that would include things like the diagnostic and statistical manual diagnosis of gender identity disorder and the uh, psychiatrization of being trans as like a, a mental disorder or a mental illness, right? Exactly. So in the DSM-4, we used to have the gender identity disorder, which is no longer here in the DSM-5. In the DSM-5, however, we do have a diagnosis for uh, gender dysphoria, which actually was not in the DSM or even thought to be in the DSM before the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, the WPATH, uh, in its uh, standards of care, which, so WPATH is kind of like the organization that makes the international standards of care for trans people to access surgeries, so to access hormones or any other types of transition care. So yeah, like it, it is highly related to that. So one of the good examples that we have of appropriation of our narrative is how for decades and even like up until recently the whole w path um like the like council or 
like the board of WPATH, used to be only uh, a constitute uh, constitute of um, cisgender people. And, and so this used to be cisgender people. Mm-hmm. That kind of contradicts the name, doesn't it? Yeah, kind of. Uh, so it used to be just cisgender people who were literally saying what pe- what trans people deserve and what they don't. And these have high values for governments. Like the governments really look at the WPAP standards that they create. They're actually going to release a version 8 uh pretty like in the next uh, months but the the past version version 7 um, is the current standards and it was produced in 2011 2012 so it's yeah a decade old and um, you know governments look at this and they're like okay we're gonna make our policies on what you think uh, should deserve coverage Mm. And so this has a huge impact when cis people say uh, on these documents that we shouldn't like, for example, like, um, well, hair transplantation or um, like facial, like feminization surgery shouldn't be accessible because it's cosmetic. Mm. Well, this has a huge impact on on the lives of trans people, right? So do you know what's new in the new version of the WPATH recommendations? Uh, do you mean in the 7th or the... The 8th, the, the eighth. one that's coming up. So the 8th hasn't come up yet. Um, and I cannot really talk much about it. I'm very sorry, I cannot really talk much about it because I haven't had the chance to, to read its any sort of document uh, about the preliminary versions. But one of the things that I know... I will not talk specifically, but one of the things that I know generally is that there will be new um, hormone regimens for like non-binary people, for Mm. example, which didn't exist in the past, uh, well, the current version. So we only have um, hormone regimens for um, like, uh, quote unquote, masculinization, well, testosterone based uh, hormone replacement therapy and uh, estradiol and spironolactone and other like uh, like progesterone based um, hormone replacement therapy. So this is this is kind of like new. Uh, this is one of the major things that are going to be implemented. Um, but that's great because. Uh, more and more trans people have been involved in the process, but it's really far from expected to be perfect because, again, and we're probably going to talk about this a little bit later, but there are people who are gatekeepers in there and even people who promote very outdated views of what trans care should be. Are there any trans people on the board now? Uh, I do not want to talk through my hat, but I do believe so. Okay. So when is the new WPATH uh, recommendations? When are they coming out? So it was supposed to come out uh, in the first quarter. Uh, the f- yeah, the first quarter of the year. Wow, they're very late. Mm, I guess yeah. I guess yeah. They are. Um, there's been a lot of drama too. Really? Yeah, because. Well, let's spill the tea. Um, <laughs> for example, in the adolescent chapter, there was one person who actually did a lot of self-referencing, which was 
funny, um, who's a, a researcher from Netherlands. And if you know about trans health a lot, the Netherlands uh, have their own. So they actually developed the gatekeeping approach. So the gatekeeping approach is also called the Amsterdam approach. Hmm. The Amsterdam model, I've heard that before. Yeah, exactly. So the Amsterdam model of trans care is ver- is one that really wants to assess trans people. Like they really want to see like are is there like they what they call like basically readiness assessments. So it's usually a lot of cisgender assumptions on what does it mean to be ready as a trans person to access healthcare. And it, it it really is mind-blowing how there's absolutely no critical reflection in, involved in the process of what we call, like, readiness assessments, because it's it's really about, like, cisgender assumptions and really um, not something that trans people created for themselves, like, as you would think, right? Can you think of a specific example of that? So for children... A readiness assessment like would be one of the I think one of the questions would be something like, is the gender uh, of the person stable? Has it been like stable for long? Does it seem to be like something that's not just a phase? And and even in the past approaches, like we used to actually like try to like deter the child from actually like mm. accessing their identity, like uh, like exploring it um so is it just like a phase and it's like it's very like as you can see it's very cis normative it's very cis centered so it's like think about it for a second like are our identities even like state like static ever like we always change in a way like someone can like like realize they're trans like after 35 years someone can like we we are always changing so what does that mean to have like a stable gender identity what does that mean is it is it molded is it shaped by like so, the parents because like a lot of the times like the parents are going to be like and this is something i've heard in research a lot um if if you compare the narrative of the child between uh, and the narrative of the parent a lot of the times the narrative of the parent is going to be much more binary Mm. than the narrative of the child it's so this is like one of the questions as you asked uh that that would be in the readiness assessment so as that person for example accessing surgery has that person take uh taken like estradiol for a year estrogen for a year has that person still like withheld that not withheld but like uh still like identifies as like a woman as a non-binary person like after even going through that year. So they're going to make you wait Mm. that whole year sometimes to even access like, like in the past, like it could be like even like waiting for, to access hormones, Mm -hmm. Um, which is pretty much what happens here, even though we have like more of a trans affirmative model, but the system is kind of like, (laughs) <laughs> really not making it easy to access anyways. So sometimes, like right now, where we are located in Montreal, uh, a clinic has a 2.5 years uh, wait list mm. uh, right now, which is, uh, like, who waits that long? Like, can you believe, like, 
how dangerous this can be. Yeah. In terms of suicide, in terms of psychological distress. Like, yeah. Yeah, two and a half years is an eternity. They even stopped taking patients on their wait, wait list because they were like, we don't have, and, and this is all the problem of making this like a specialty care. This is mm. all the problem of that. And, and yeah. We could we could go on on that. For, I could go on that for a very long time for a very long time. But um, so appropriation of narrative like causes a lot of like trickle down. Mm. So it starts with basically the the board of directors of WPATH, and then that their recommendations um, go through go through governments, governments yeah. and those governments. Um, basically set the standard of care for how individual doctors are going to treat trans patients. Yeah. And even like doctors here. And so in and, Quebec, and what gets covered by insurance, whether yes. it's public or private. And even like sometimes it depends on it's, it, I think it would even start more from like even higher than um, W path. I, I think it would start at uh, more of a, even like at a, macro systemic level of like what is the current ongoing narrative of mm. like how should we treat trans people collectively mm. um and then it goes down into these institutions who are the kind of reflecting so if i want to like use my uh, kind of like a social work frameworks here um so it's kind of like trickling down that way and uh even governments like do not respect necessarily at a hundred percent what is written and usually takes years before they are ad adopted so even though the st standards of care at number eight are gonna like pop out eventually there it's still maybe gonna take like a few years before governments like are gonna adopt them and implement them and yeah so um it's very hard to to access one of the interesting examples of um the differences so here we use uh we have kind of a specialty care framework i'm not saying it's uh it's so i'm going to talk about ontario which which ontario declared that it's not and that every like nurse uh, like every clinical nurse every like doctor is apt to do this and then if there's like a, a very complicated like complex chronic issue then we should definitely use the the help of uh an endocrinologist in 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 the equation prescribing uh, hormone replacement therapy. yeah exactly but all of them um in ontario like the, the government declared that it's poli uh, in its policy that because the wait lists of the specialty care places were too long that it, you know everyone's actually so everyone who's deemed to be apt to do that should do it uh i mean i i i'm not saying it's perfect there's probably people still being refused um but it's it should be like at least a first step and and this is again like appropriation of narrative like one good example in quebec is when the government uh so there was a, a judgment by a judge more here in quebec saying that we trans people non-binary people like should be able to change like our gender to x and like one of that was also that non-binary like people uh sh like 
children from I I don't recall exactly if it's 14 to 17 or 14 and under. I think it was 14 and under saying that 14 children under 14 uh should be able to change their um should be able to change their gender marker without having a psychological assessment. Mm-hmm. And the government said, whoop, we're gonna, no, we're gonna challenge that in, uh, in justice. In court? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, again, this is, this is like what cis people think we should have access to. I mean, like changing a gender marker for a child won't like impact. I mean, yeah. it's changeable. You can revert back if it, if it's not, but that would mean the world to a child and that could change the way they are called by like professionals and stuff like that. It could really make like, yeah, it's extremely gatekeepy to require a psychological evaluation just to change an M to an F or an F to an X or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So these are also part of the appropriation of our narrative and what should we have access to and what should we not have access to. And also, in that line, one of the other things that appropriation of narrative does is in what kind of like a, a vestige of, of that is how we are not believing, especially a lot of professionals are not believing the diversity of narratives because, uh, for example, academia uh, and academic papers and scientists really like enforce the idea of the gender binary into into this production of knowledge this uh cisgender epistemology should we say like this creation of knowledge this process of creation of knowledge is very centered on cisgender people's thoughts well that makes trans people in um clinical settings or in um doctor's offices it, it just makes them sometimes um, unable to access care unless they conform their narrative to what is typically like the trans narrative like oh like I knew I was like a trans person ever since I was like mm-hmm. four and then or like eight and then like I repressed it and then like and, and I knew I was a trans girl ever since or and it's usually very binary and stuff like so for example this is the kind of example and if you don't say such things like that was my experience too well you're just gonna get kind of denied and this this is an epistemic injustice it's an injustice of access to your rights of of care like trans care is rights it's it's human rights right it's really like it's defining you like you have the right to define yourself Hmm. who you are just like you, you have the right to to say like i don't want a child and be like go and even people like there's a lot of parallels we can make between abortion and access to hrt um Hmm. like how a lot of people who wants abortions are gonna have to have like assessments before Hmm. and 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 we're gonna try to convince them that oh like you can keep you know like what it would be like if you kept your child and whatever and we are we are trying to convince them that they don't want this and, mm-hmm. and we kind of do like a lot of the same things, the same te- uh, tactics to trans people. Because women can't decide for themselves, right? 
this is an this is also an uh, an epistemic injustice mm. uh, women yeah. and, and pregnant people and, yeah they're both uh issues of bodily autonomy as well like mm -hmm. you know cis people are very very concerned with what trans people do with their bodies um overly concerned yeah especially when we know that if we take uh surgery for example a lot of people assist people who go through surgeries will have a, a really much higher like regret rate than like trans people like even accessing like life-saving gender-affirming surgery right. like like people could just regret like huge i mean they could technically have huge um like psychological distress from from having like a surgery that, that in fact they did not want and and in trans people it really is like a, a very 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 low percentage and it's not very significant at all so what you're saying is like the for just all surgeries in general there's a rate of regret in terms of what percentage of the time do people say oh i regret having that surgery i wish i hadn't had it and this is for all people trans cis it's just the overall average for all types of surgeries and that average is higher than the specific rate of regret for um gender affirming surgeries for trans people mm -hmm. they, trans people regret having gender affirming surgeries at a much lower rate than very much yeah. lower if not around like minus one percent uh mm -hmm. and i've heard i i don't want to like talk through my hat again uh but some some of like the surgeries like go over way over like one two percent three percent like of regret rate uh i don't want to like uh, have a, an exact percentage because i i don't have the exact number right in front of me but i do remember it's much higher than that mm -hmm. uh for some surgeries and 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 yet we do not gatekeep uh, these surgeries, uh, we're like, oh, you want to have breast augmentation? Oh, you want to like, mm -hmm. you want to have like your nose job? Fine, fine, go, go for it. And, and you're going to pay what you have to pay. And then there you go. You have it. Um, whereas, uh, whereas like trying to, uh, get surgery as a trans person is almost like a marriage contract. Like, super complicated a lot of p paperwork a lot of waiting to do readiness interestingly i've heard that there's um some gatekeeping around breast reduction for cis women which is kind of i feel like it comes from uh, the same mindset of like not respecting people's bodily autonomy and um applying your beauty standards and your gender standards to other people i've definitely heard that there is a lot for hysterectomies. Right, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, reproductive care, yeah. Like. Exactly. So there's a, there's a lot of um, cognitive dissonance. We, we, the people who are, like, super uh, against, like, people aborting, aborting uh, their babies, whatever, like, their, not even babies, I can't call them fetuses. babies. The fetuses, yeah. Um, like, they will still like make it very hard to access to contraception or permanent like permanent forms of contraception such as 
uh, like, and, and, and weirdly for, for people who have like testes and like want to get like, um, a ligature of, uh, uh like a vasectomy, vasectomy. Yeah. Then it's going to be super, super mu- uh, The surgery is also much easier. Also, it does less that da- like it's reversible mm-hmm. and it's like, go for it. Whereas like if, uh, if someone who has like a, an, uh, a uterus wants to, to, to have a hysterectomy, well, it's very hard to access to. So there's like common issues there about bodily autonomy that really is uh, a huge epistemic injustice and usually is a lot of cisgender men who really like in gynecology, a lot of the knowledge that we that, that was created was created by men and, mm-hmm. and white men, right? White cisgender men. Um, and so it's hard to, to, to have decent care in that way. So on the topic of epistemic injustices, uh, one point that you brought up for us to discuss is how when like a TV station or a newspaper wants to bring on a quote unquote credible expert about trans people, they usually choose um, cisgender experts. Um, and quote unquote experts, right? <laughs> right. They, they're, yeah their credentials might not always be uh, superb. Um, and I guess the thinking there is like, you're like neutral, detached, you're impartial, you, you don't have a dog in the fight. Like if you're a cis per- or a trans person, then you must be like biased. Like they wanna, they basically want like a, uh, they want like a quote unquote normal person to tell us like, hey, are these people crazy who Mm-hmm. These yeah. these men who think they're women, these women who think they're men, these people who say they're not women or men, like they, you know, tell us whether they're crazy or not. Normal, normal doctor. <laughs> what are these transistors? <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's um, there's this huge, huge, huge um, problem that goes back to to one of like the very concept, like the kind of like how like modern like quote-unquote modern science began which is like oh you should be like uh out of this like like we don't have emotions like you should be very rational like because men are rational right and like kind of like this positivism like oh like science should be like an exterior like you should be like you should be from outside of the group you should be like just an observant Mm. and if you are inside the group and it used to be also like a lot related to women because women were crazy right their hormones were making them crazy like so how how could we know they possibly told the truth well we had to be like observing from the exterior and actually making the narrative ourselves because Mm. they can't even decide for themselves these crazy bitches like (laughs) 
this this is like this is really how like a science was acting around like um cisgender women for a long time and so and and still acting like this um um but the pr the problem is is that it, this narrative of like the this independency this like um you should be from outside is mm -hmm. still like a, vest, uh, a vestige of, of, of this thought that you can't produce knowledge and, and coherent like um, expertise if you are a, a, a person from within. You have to be outside of it. I think the origin of this attitude in the human sciences, the social sciences, comes from trying to emulate the natural science natural sciences so um physics chemistry and like the biology of like plants and non-human animals or like cell biology genetics like those are all examples where the model is to like run an experiment mm -hmm. and observe it from the outside and have as little interference as possible by a person but when you're studying people like trying to apply that model doesn't necessarily work the same way. Are you sure? Like trans people aren't plants? Like <laughs> <laughs> well, I think like, so we talked about like the one, one mindset, one way you can approach it is the detachedness, like, the, like to say that um, people within a certain group are too biased to be able to study that group. Um, another way to, uh, approach the social sciences, the, the science of human beings, is to look at um, informally accumulated cultural knowledge as uh, a legitimate and important source of knowledge about people. So, for example, like the, the knowledge of trans people accrued through lived experience as that as being an important source of knowledge and um, treating that as a form of expertise and as a form of scientific evidence or scientific authority. Mm -hmm. um, that's like a totally different mindset. And like, that's the one that we advocate when we say, um, when, when we advocate for having, um, you know, trans people speak about trans issues on TV and in newspapers and stuff like that. Yeah, I think what you're bringing is um, what we call in philosophy, it was brought up first by uh, what we call feminist epistemologies. Mm. It's like the, the epistem we can make our own, the meaning making can happen from within. Mm. Like we're not crazy. Like, like emotions are also a, a part of this reality. We don't have to deny them and, and, it's it's also like black uh, and uh, Afrocentric epistemologies who uh, also can also tell us a lot about that. Um, like uh, one of like the uh, aspects of that that I, I learned was was that in the process of uh, black and uh, Afrocentric epistemologies, uh, one of the framework they will use is that intonations and like how someone will speak truly from like with a lot of great emotions when they talk really like attributes a lot of meaning to what they say. And they're going to take like 
they're gonna take like like the person's really gonna attribute like a, a huge importance of that too and that's how like people make meaning together like they they create this like this knowledge together this process of knowledge emotions have to do like have to play to in in the equation of making knowledge like mm. the emotions and and the intensity of what you're you're going through it's it's very important in in black epistemologies uh uh one of the most interesting honestly uh courses i've had um about these in uh, feminist philosophy when i was in uh, my uh, social work bachelor so when we so the feminist epistemologies are kind of like trying to push away this kind of like oh i'm independent this is like we're totally we're actually proud in saying like we are a part of it and that doesn't mean what we say and do and create in knowledge is is uh is wrong and on the other side we actually think that getting the experience of people uh from within like what they actually live and how they make meaning about their lives is is much more right and much more like uh ethical than trying to impose the your knowledge from an outside perspective where you don't actually live anything the person is is experiencing on a daily basis like believe people like be it's it's really about truly like making making meaning Uh, you you don't take that from one person. Like you usually you take you have like fourteen, fifteen, twenty people in a qualitative study, and usually there are things that are gonna come together, and you know there there are like categories that you're gonna make that oh that looks similar to what the other person said too. So, and with the accumulation, like you were saying, of um, of narratives of of what we call like also like a lot of that is uh, from um grounded theory or uh thema thematic analysis like uh usually things that are going to come up again and again and again so we're like oh that actually makes sense for a lot of people yeah. so maybe so these we can, are uh, yeah. these are um qualitative research methodologies exactly. in social work uh, well, grounded and, uh, theory and sociology in a lot of like uh social sciences and uh humanities yeah Would that be one in uh, in anthropology as well? Yes, it's a it's one that's uh, very prominent. And there's also like um, well, in anthropology, you also have the um, ethnographic uh, methodologies, which are a little bit. I, I mean, it's very much like documenting, but there's like different ways of doing that, and some of them are very like colonialistic. A little, yeah, says. Yeah, there's uh, problems within uh, anthropology, but I think more and more like going towards the we believe the people and what what they say and the mm. meaning they make about their lives. Yeah. So so to carry on that idea, when you said that sometimes on in TV shows like they invite um, ex supposedly like allegedly like these experts like these alleged experts um there are cisgender people like a lot of the times there's gonna there gonna be a pool of trans people who are academics and do a lot of very good work but they're only gonna reach out first to like the cisgender person and it really really is 
speaking volumes on on how we th we think what we think of trans people and wh what they say about themselves like does it make sense to you does it make sense to me no 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 okay so it speaks volume because to me oh wait what did what you said make sense to me yeah, yeah. oh yeah what you said makes sense to me yeah okay <laughs> so um it says a lot about truly the significance we're gonna attribute trans people it really says a lot about like you know like you said before like oh who are these crazy people like they're always mm -hmm. like shouting everywhere well they're shouting because they're experiencing epistemic epistemic injustices they're 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 going through these injustices and they want to be heard and no matter how loud uh we shout it's it's hard to to be heard and and even today those people how many people have a a, a transgender chair of study and and the people at the head is going to be a cis person mm. how many of those let i don't know the number but i have never seen and I know there might be one or two that I heard recently in the United States, but they are rarely held by um, by trans people themselves. They are held by um, cisgender people. And these people make a career. They make a lot of money because this is a hot topic, mm. right? And so there's the injustice too, right? They make money off of our own narratives. They make a research career on on this. They're surfing the wave of like, oh, like trans people are cool. And suddenly a lot of people like have interest. A lot of cis people have interest in trans studies. What for? Mm -hmm. Do, like, you know, I, I have as a... I, I used to be in a transaction um, group of the University of Montreal, and there there was like one cisgender um, master's researcher. I I think I think he was in in sociology, and he approached us, and and was also like very rude. He was like, "I want to study trans." He he didn't even have like that was so messy. We actually reported the the school like the university because he didn't have like ethics approval. Hmm. He wanted to publish what he, he had, like he wanted to, to make as knowledge to, to help us like kind of like in a savior way. Like he wanted to interview you or like he wanted to interview like members of the trans community and like hmm. what's the, what's their experience I think in, in mental health or something like that, hmm. whatever. And it seemed like a lot of, um, appropriation like of, mm. of like uh, you can see that in a lot of people who are having this savior kind of like mindset like oh my god there's nothing like right now we have to save these poor trans people oh my god we have to save those trans children like yes obviously we have to do something but it seemed like sometimes they they even like even like a lot of trans parents are going to call themselves like 
call themselves like trans activists. Like, and I'm like, oh, mm. okay, like back down a little bit. Like, please back <laughs> down. Like, like that's and people in research, um, too. So, and I'm like, wow, that's and making papers about it. Um, mm. <laughs> yeah, it's it is so self centered. It is so. It's it's just to shine light on themselves. Like it seemed like there's a lot of uh, like, look at me, what I'm doing is so moralistically good, like kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I I really I haven't personally interacted with cis people who devote a lot of their time to studying trans people. So I can only guess at like the psychology of those people. What like what what is the mindset that motivates them to do that? I think we want to all be seen as good people. Mm -hmm. I think that's, well, definitely the uh, self-licensing sometimes that comes in, right? The, like we, we talked last episode, like the, oh, I'm a good person. And, and I, I, I always wondered like, what if I told that person? Cause, cause I knew that person. What if I told that person, exactly what i told the audience like you you're kind of like promoting yourself as an act like a trans activist mm. of, almost like a, a trans activist slash parent activist when the position you should hold is you should be at the back of us you know you, know, you, sh you should be you should be supporting mm. but you shouldn't call yourself an activist like mm. um i wonder how that person would react would that be what would that be a cis fragile reaction would that be mm -hmm. would that be like what we call uh what we talked about last time like the like the i'm an ally like don't you dare like uh mm -hmm. <laughs> don't you dare tell me i'm a bad person whatever kind of thing um so yeah this and they're making money, a lot of money off of, of that. And um, as you know, I wanted access to this research career too. I I have opportunities sometimes where I am given like good opportunities, but sometimes I'm like, someone is going on a show and someone someone is like, take, it seems like sometimes they're just taking the best opportunities and keeping them from this, themselves. And then like giving like, oh, there's like a lower kind of opportunity. We're gonna give it to like a trans people just to seem good. Mm. And that infuriates me. Mm. So yeah, a lot of unpaid work too. What do you mean by that? Uh, a lot of emotional catering to the people. Catering. Catering. Sorry. Yeah, catering um, to the people. A lot of um, education. Some, and even if you work with them, like you have to, you have. I think you really have to be like mentally ready for. <laughs> Um, for what you're gonna see, mm -hmm. it's it's hard. The uh, academic world is hard, and and sometimes you think these people, whenever like there's uh, something bad happening to you, or people are, they won't they won't come and and use their clout to protect you, and that's when you see like, are you really about protecting trans people? Are you really about mm -hmm. like making our lives better, or are you just like lip servicing or something? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. in in overall all we talked about how do you think that would affect people's mental health right well it's interesting to me that you said like trans people are screaming over um 
epistemic injustice. Like it is really a, a basic need to be able to define your own story. And when people t- take that away from you by putting an outside narrative on you that's that's unwanted, a narrative about like who and what trans people are, that's extremely demotivating as a human being like to not be not be seen with dignity to not be seen as like sane and rational and capable of making your own choices about your own body and your own identity and you know understanding your own experience Mm -hmm. and I think um, there's certainly a lot of like practical and material uh, injustices too that that are either caused or exacerbated by transness, by being trans um, and transphobia. But it, it still is true that like what so much of what we want and what we're asking for is to just be for others to see us as we see ourselves mm-hmm. and the, the right to like tell our own stories and be believed about those stories and, to be able to have a voice and to speak for ourselves and to have not have other people speak for us or speak over us, not to have people speak about us without us being able to participate in the conversation mm-hmm. and, and have a big role in steering the conversation. Yeah. Um, I definitely think this idea of epistemic injustice can go a long way in talking about what uh, what trans people are really missing in this society and what we need still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely such a huge mountain of, let's say, a huge amount of shit that trans people have to go through still because of all of these injustices. And one of the very good examples I could give is how, like, a few years ago in Ontario, well... It was quite a long, not so much of a long time ago, well, considering the history of like trans health, but one of the like clinic of someone who, and it was documented, and so it's not news, um, of Kenneth J. Zucker in Ontario had a clinic uh, and he had um, conversion practices there mm-hmm. and he still publishes in about trans people. Today, mm. people read him. Still, they they give him, and he 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 is like the last one cited, uh, uh, referenced in uh, in co-authorship of um, the last W Path version seven mm. standards of care. Kenneth mm. J. Zucker. That's. And he used to be one of the first ones, I think, if not the first one to be referenced in the version six. Oof. And this person had his whole clinic closed by force because he was fucking people up. Like, Mm -hmm. literally, he was hurting children in, in that way. Like, hurting trans people trans conversion therapy in this context means like an approach to trans care that is like "Mm, could you just not be trans yeah like before we deal with the whole you being trans thing let's just like 
that seems too hard. So let's just try and make it easy and make you just be happy with your assigned gender and not yeah. and just try to make you cis. Yeah, that's what's called actually like a uh, desistance tactics. Mm. Like we we try to like use a lot of, and also like desistance is also was also highly cri- uh, criticized as as a way to 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 do things because it comes from criminology. Mm. right like it comes from criminology and the whole desistance like of of like engaging in crime right people like we would want to make people desist from doing that and the, the they took the same term and applied it to like trans children or and trans mm. people so it's like it's a whole mess so just imagine it's not so far away that people right now even even right now are still being affected by conversion therapy even though it was supposedly like it's now supposedly illegal in canada there's definitely ways that are identified uh by um academics that work in that topic that the the current laws like do not make it like foolproof so and and trans people are and, and this is citing from uh Savvy LGBTQ plus, savvy LGBTQ plus, which is on inclusion and exclusion of knowledges of of LGBTQ plus people. Non-binary people are, for example, seven times more likely to go to conversion therapy mm. uh, than cisgender LGBT uh, LGB people or LGBT people, and even on their sexual orientations, they're like close to two times. Uh, closer mm. to two times or 1.5 times more likely to have their sexual orientation like like con- converted, like uh, trying to be converted. So these injustices about our narratives have concrete and, and dire consequences to, to our mental health, our physical health, suicide rates, psychological distress, rates of depression, anxiety, which in turn has causes a, a lot of the physical problems we have. I mean, there's even relations, uh, like links between like high stress, like and the, the stress that you constantly have because you're in a min- minority, like you're like marginalized. For example, IBS is apparently more frequent in queer people, mm. like uh, um, irritable bowel syndrome or so there are like, physical consequences to the stress you experience i mean like i mean if you have generalized uh uh anxiety disorders like general uh generalized stress disorders i don't don't remember which one it is but um you could you have more chances uh, you have more uh probabilities of getting uh, a cancer really yeah because it, it activates your um like uh the the glands you have under your uh serenal glands i think they're called mm-hmm. um and those produce cortisol which affects the tissues in your body when you produce too much and it's like constantly producing more than it should be and actually affects your your health like there's it's it's incredible how like mental health and health are related and and all of that like it trickles down like from <laughs> Like these epistemical injustices to to like our bodies and and mental health, right? Hmm. Those two things to think about IBS and about cancer is really remarkable. Mm-hmm. 
there was um there was like um a huge uh, presentation I I saw on that that's very recent and how like literally just a constant stress you you experience like will affect the uh, the the kind of like the layer and uh, of cells that are aligned in your gut and how like this is gonna like let more irritable like usually it's just to let uh, some some of the nutrients go through your body, but if if it's too wide or if it's like uneven because it's disrupted by anxiety and cortisol and like mm. uh, other like chemicals in your body that are disbalanced, well, definitely your uh, it's gonna let the more uh, irrit like irritable elements go like kind of rub onto your gut and and really create like these irritable bones this is a very simplistic explanation of it but uh it really has like a kind of an effect uh on it it's so yeah epistemic injustices and and uh we're now now we're at uh gut health right yeah that's <laughs> amazing though yeah so i think uh we're gonna finish this for today okay yeah yeah, so that does it for this episode of Trans Theory on epistemic injustices. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to contact us and reach uh, to tell us about a topic you would like uh, us to talk about, you can do so by going to transtheory.net and then just scroll down and hit the contact uh, form. Thank you so much, Yaro. Thank you, Ash. Have a good day. Bye.